Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This episode of The Journo Project features Network 10 senior journalist and presenter and director and co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, Antoinette Latouf. She's an award-winning journalist who's worked as a reporter for a variety of outlets in television, radio and online. But despite these credentials, she tells me her biggest battle is acceptance. She's determined to fight the assumption that she should only work for public broadcasters such as SBS or ABC because of her heritage and is working to make the Australian media more reflective of our diverse society. Antoinette, can you tell us a bit about how you got into this journalism game? Is it something that had always been a dream of yours? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my mother can recall probably when I was five years old and I wanted to tell stories. I was fascinated by human stories and journeys and policies and um, I think uh, my parents coming over as civil war refugees, seeing their journey in Australia, but also being at high school when September 11 happened and then growing up, you know, trying to identify and reconcile being of Arab lineage and also in Australia, I guess at that point I felt really frustrated that my community was spoken about and there was so much, you know, media narrative and public scrutiny and our voices were missing. So I guess that inspired me to um, pursue a career in journalism, even though my father was dead set against it. You know, he said, like many migrant parents or uh, immigrant um, parents, what kind of career is that? Um, become a doctor or a lawyer or really nobody if you don't want a career then become a hairdresser Um, so I was discouraged actually from finishing the HSC um, and instead suggested I become a hairdresser because it was easier to digest and accept Um, um, but yeah so uh, but you did finish did. the HSC I did and went into the uni. HSC and went into mm. university at University of Technology Sydney. Actually, you know, put myself into a, took myself out of my local public school, which you know was good. Um, however, it was also home to what then became a lot of Comancheros and outlaw motorcycle ba- um, gang heads. <laughs> So I decided, I went home one day and just said to mum and dad, I'm changing schools. I sat a selective school exam and I'm going to, and they were like, oh, I'm like, yep, sign here. Um, And so then I put myself into a different school um, and got the marks I needed and got into, at that time, a very coveted communications degree at UTS. Uh, And then I guess they say the rest is history. Here we are at Channel 10 now. We can hear the the hubbub of the newsroom behind us, which is constantly going, of course. You you went through ABC and a few different uh, diversions before then? Yes. um, I think I've had an interesting and perhaps an uncommon career trajectory in that I've, mm. uh, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth between public broadcasting and commercial media. I'm super proud of the fact that I you know, started at SBS and then went on to the ABC and had my kind of, I guess, my formative years and my training um, alongside some of the best journalists in the country. But I also felt that despite the fact I was told that SBS was only a place that someone like me could be, I decided no, that I wouldn't, I didn't want to be limited by that stereotype, but also some of the industry advice, and went on to Network 10. So I spent a few years at Network 10, had my two children 
while I was here. I went on paternity leave, was very supported. But then, as uh, you may well be aware, as many media outlets have, there was um, the network was in a bit of trouble um, and there were redundancies. So I took a voluntary redundancy at the time. So I left because, you know, the network was no longer able to do the type of journalism I was interested in. And then went back to SBS and then went back to the ABC. <laughs> and then here I am again um, after CBS bought Network 10. And as you can hear in the background, you know, um, it's a hive of activity and programming. And it's a different atmosphere now by the sound of it. Absolutely different mm. atmosphere. It's exciting to be back. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned it. That you, was that something you were aware of really from the outset that, oh, SBS is really the only place that, that you could go? Absolutely. That's what careers advisors at universities would tell me. And that's what, despite the fact I was I had left SBS and been at 10 for a couple of years, and I was still continually referred to as that SBS reporter. There's one example that I often give to people. I was doing a life cross somewhere, maybe at Darling Harbour. I, I can't remember the story. Um, it wasn't anything of huge significance, but there was a big Channel 10 satellite truck. And as you would know, the, the, those uh, satellite trucks are very well signed. So it was blue with you a big logo. Them, really. You can't miss them. Um, and I was holding a Channel 10 microphone and doing a live cross. And of course, as always, there were the rubberneckers, rubber members of the public, and they were looking on and I heard a man say to another man, a middle-aged man, go, oh, what's that? What's going on? Oh, it's just, it's just SBS. And this is because they looked at me and assumed that I was from SBS. We laughed, the cameraman laughed. But I guess that was one of the early seeds of what would then become Media Diversity Australia, kind of hearing those things. And then I went on to lecture at Maclay College and I would have young Asian aspiring journalists or young Muslim men who would come up to me and say, do I need to change my name? Am I ever going to get a job? And what um, is your advice? Ab absolutely, absolutely not. Don't change your name. Don't change who you are because what you bring to your craft and your authenticity is what's going to set you apart from what is an increasingly homogenous industry. It hasn't changed much really in the last two decades, has it? I mean, when you think of Me Too or, I mean, even from my personal reflections as a cadet, we were told don't do domestic violence stories, you know? Right. You don't do those in the police beat. No, no, that's just, they're domestic. It's amazing. It's All amazing. that's changed. But yes, that homogenous Anglo-Celtic kind of dominance yes. really, and not just in TV, across the media, is much the same. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, it is. What we have seen, though, and what I guess we're inspired by, is women in media have been around for about 12 years, and we've absolutely seen a change in the media industry. I know, you know, being at the ABC a few years back, a lot of women hold prominent, not only on-screen positions, but editorial positions, head of investigations, executive producer of the best flagship national current affairs program. So I guess we're encouraged by that change, but we knew it didn't happen overnight. It's 12 years in the making. And so I guess I had a bit of a light bulb moment when I was at a little a suburban gym, nothing flash, and I was in the cardio section and there's all those television screens banked up one after another and they were all on mute and it was breakfast television time and I just looked at every screen. This was about two and a half years ago. ABC, you know, Network 10, 7, 9 and every morning television offering, bar SBS, which I think had a Russian program playing, 100% Anglo presenters and I, and I looked around at the gym and I just thought well that's not even this cardio room that's not reflective <laughs> of this cardio room let alone the rest of the nation yeah that was kind of my moment where I thought okay this is this is just not that's not okay this is what Australia wakes up to people say oh why are you so focused on television well we're not and we know that people news consumption is happening increasingly digitally and on our smartphones but it's emblematic and it signifies a, a much broader problem well, um, what, what is the cost of that do you think oh so many 
journey, where do I start? <laughs> the cost is, I think, journalism in the industry, as we know, has faced unprecedented, unprecedented disruption over the past decade. Um, so it's not resourced in a way that it used to be. So already newsrooms are grappling with enabling journos to leave newsrooms. You know, I was in Radio Current Affairs uh, at the ABC after you, and I know how, how infrequent it was to get out of the office. And that surely wasn't your experience. Yeah, it's not ideal, that's for sure. Yeah. You don't get the same story. Yes, and so sure some would stay back and, and package from the desk, but increasingly that was becoming the, the norm every day. So we know that because of resources and increasing deadlines with the 24 ABC 24, that you're filing multiple platforms, you're filing frequently, you're engaging social media, so you don't have time to perhaps engage communities, sit at those local council meetings, pour over those annual reports that we used to. So that's kind of across the board. Then another problem is in story selection. So when you have people who are generally of a similar background, geographically, education-wise, socioeconomically, quite often or not, they have similar thinking and similar contacts in their phone. So when you're at an editorial meeting, um, and again, uh, at an editorial meeting when West Connects was first approved, a lot of the people um, at the meeting at the time were like, oh, but this is going to be terrible for, you know, and then there's this protest at Newtown, and what about Haverfield house prices? And, and I remember thinking, well, I live in Marylands, and I'm, I've, I've spent my life on the M4, and for people like me and the one in 10 Australians that live in Western Sydney, <laughs> infrastructure and change to um, our ability to connect to the CBD is going to... It's really going to shift things for us. Mm. And that was a really tiny example of it's how... Almost, it's like there's a silent group of people that aren't given that voice in the media. Yeah, and it can be as simple mm. as going, well, no, actually, I think that's a really good idea and it's, if it's going to half my um, commute time daily, um, then I don't really care if um, Newtown House prices take a 10% hit. You know, and not to say that their grievances aren't warranted, but if you're, everybody's grievances in an editorial meeting are the same, mirrored on the same life um, experiences and same connections, and that's problematic because we're out of touch with the greater Australian public. What we've seen in the US and the UK, and now you know, arguably with our uh, recent election outcome. You know, the pollsters got it wrong, the commentators got it wrong, and I'd argue how out of touch is the media with how people are feeling with, you know, during the same-sex marriage plebiscite, I was at the ABC and I grew up in quite a conservative community, culturally and religiously conservative community. So my weekends were spent where I grew up and between my area uh, in Western Sydney and my husband's area in southwestern Sydney and all barbecue debates, people were staunchly against same-sex marriage. For various reasons. Um, you know, we'd had these really feisty debates, and so I had a pretty good sense that there was going to be pockets of the community that were strongly against it. And then, surprise, surprise, when the results came out, those two LGA were the highest no voters in the country. That's not to say that their vote is representative of the rest of the country, but when we come to covering that or to understanding that and not demonising that or ridiculing that, um, because when people feel that their concerns, political, religious, freedom of speech, or even similarly with Israel Folau, I think that's when fringe politics starts to get really appealing. A relative of mine posted on Good Friday that Pauline Hanson was um, spent Good Friday Mass at Our Lady of Lebanon uh, Church, which is the largest... Um, Lebanese Catholic Maronite church in the country. I mean, this is a woman who has 
built a career off being racist, uh, xenophobic policies. And she was embraced and hugged and supported. And I thought, well, something, there's a disconnect here. She's reaching these people who feel that their, be it their religious ideals, their conservatism, their con whatever their concerns are, aren't being mirrored by mainstream politics or aren't heard and canvassed by mainstream media. I saw that. It was just kind of like a Snapchat or an Instagram video. And I had to rewind and I thought, what? How is she being embraced? How is a woman who has built a career on telling us that, you know, immigrants don't belong in this country being embraced by an, uh, an entire community of immigrants and refugees? It was, it, it was, it, I was dumbfounded. <laughs> I suppose it does show, uh, really, a newsroom is just a microcosm of the rest of society. Well, and be. if you're not represented well, there, and because it's really like a filtered down approach, and you've got your chief of staff or your editor at the top, and, and you're pushing your story to try and get through all these different filters and if you don't have that representation all the way up to the top it's going to be reflected yes and people community groups or you know called a silent majority are going to look elsewhere they're going to all of a sudden fringe commentators on the right or the left seem really appealing all of a sudden people like Pauline Hanson and their policies don't seem so outlandish and I think that's a real danger I think and that's really dangerous it links in a bit with the media raids doesn't it do you think that people I don't know how do we restore that faith that people have in the media in Australia and the importance of it to our democracy I, I mean I think that's two-pronged I think um, Waleed Ali hit the nail on the head on the head when he in an editorial said how much are members of the public worried about this? I know all my journos and on Twitter we're all talking about it but again, journalists and people who are relying too much on Twitter sentiment the types of 20% of Australians are on Twitter. It's a bit of an echo chamber and it's not reflective of how the broader public feels. So we might be in, you know, enraged and you know my tweet might go viral but that's just amongst like-minded people in the same industry. So I don't think the concern is mirrored across uh, you know, just the general public. It's at the same time that I think there is, can, there is a bit of a dislocation and distrust in mainstream media, either because people aren't feeling reflected and represented, but also because I don't think the media is held to account enough. You know, I think that can be really, you know, divisive, inflammatory, unfair, completely inaccurate reporting that largely goes unscathed. You know, the, be it the Press Council or ACMA's limited power, I th you, there's a bit of a sense that you can say and do whatever you want with little recourse. And so I think it's difficult for the greater sort of Australian public to feel an enormous sympathy with a media that it doesn't feel is reflected or held accountable for some of the pretty crappy things it does. I want to reflect a bit on the stories that you've done, of course, Antoinette. You're an award-winning journalist in your own right. Quite a few, I noticed, United Nations Media Peace Awards, which yes. are amazing. Can you tell us a bit about those stories? And I think people are fascinated by how do we find these stories? Did they evolve? Was it your gut instinct, sure. your contacts? Interestingly, um, often when you go to those award ceremonies, it's uh, the SBS and the ABC who dominate the categories. But most of my awards or finalists um, was my time at Network 10. I really felt that those sort of SBS type stories, and then I put that in inverted commas, can be done to have commercial appeal. And so one was about forced marriage in mm. Western Sydney amongst different community groups. And that was out of my connections and growing, mm. growing up there and knowing people. Um, and I just think that those stories that have sometimes seemed deemed too worthy. I mean, I have a, had at the time a very good chief of 
actual staff who I'd go, oh, I think I've got this really good story. It's like, oh, Antoinette, it's we're not SBS. I'm like, no, I know we're not SBS. So it can be done in an engaging, fast-paced, whatever environment, like, style that we need. But these stories are important. Um, and so, yeah, that was one story I did. Um, and that just took time to... And also being allowed the time to develop those networks. It's really difficult when I feel you want to do those investigative stories in a news or current affairs outlet, not in a longer-form program, you know, like a Four Corners. Mm. It's often your own time. I mean, you're spending your own time. You're developing relationships. Because I still had to file almost every day. And that's and that's the that's the difficulty. And you were doing that, the background research and, uh, on top of that? Yeah, and I remember at the time when, when one of the young women who was in a forced marriage was ready to talk. I was at a family wake or something and I got a call by a social worker saying, she's ready, can you come and meet us? We're in Fairfield. And I was actually at my mum's house in Marylands, which is not far away. And I'm like, mum, I have to leave. <laughs> and so I ducked out, you know. And so having... A, having those connections, but B, being willing to go on above and beyond, and that can be really exhausting, to go above and beyond, you know, your, your daily duties. Um, but, you know, but then subsequently there were many more um, stories that surfaced about forced marriage, and then there was government action, legislation change, and I'm, I'm not saying it was a direct result but out it of all my... contributes, doesn't it? ..to the national discussion, mm. to policy leaders realising this isn't something that just happens in, in the Middle East or in Asia or, mm. in, you know, in a faraway land. This is happening... Um, under our noses and we don't realise it. And so then that continued um, in national discussion and um, changes to legislation, which the difficulty with forced marriage was that people weren't forthcoming and going to the police because they don't want dad or uncle going to jail. And so the laws needed revising to cater for people who need support but don't necessarily want to be completely ostracised from their communities and have dad end up in jail. Yeah, so I guess that's just one example. And it, it perhaps shows too that having that those that build up of stories it's almost like a way maybe that's what we need to communicate better to to people that in the good and bad there is quite a lot of good stories that do contribute to change yeah absolutely and positive change yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, what i do find you know i do a lot more work in digital now what i do find is those good stories don't click <laughs> Unfortunately, young people. Mm, so what do we do about that? Yeah, it's really, it's really difficult, you know, again, because... It's all about the clicks these days. Absolutely. Less so at the ABC, but absolutely. You know, the ABC has trialling ABC Life, for example, you know, and I see some of the comments on ABC Facebook, like, what is this fluff piece or whatever? <laughs> and it'll be about, you know, females being empowered to take care of their financial future or, yeah. or you know, how why I gave up booze for a year. Or, but, you know, like, those human interest stories matter as well. Mm. And I could see from a kind of an image perspective or the people with a more traditional perception of what ABC should be outputting, you know, politics, environment. But I see that they're trying to engage a younger, digitally savvy audience as well. Mm. Um, so uh, having a public broadcasting background, but also understanding commercial viability. Um, and so returning to mm. Network 10, um, being part of 10 Daily, which is a digital startup, tapping into a 25-year-old to 40-year-old, mm. pretty much... Um, a news consumer who solely gets their news from online, which is um, increasingly the case for that demographic. And as much as you want to do really good stories, you know, you might do a story about a six-storey building collapsing in, let's say, the Philippines and, you know, three levels are of a childcare centre and people won't click. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not an important story. It's really, di it's really difficult then. So mm. when, then when I go back and I chat to one of my colleagues, I'm like, excellent, excellent. She's like, you can do it, but 
it may not click, you know, and at the end of the month, clicks and everybody's click amount for the month is analysed. Oh, so we need a different measurement on top of that, maybe? Well, that's what I... I mean, I argue yeah. for that. How much How much is that just a measure? You know, because one of our stories that did the best, you know, it was a baby rolling down the hill, a video, like one of the videos that did the best. It was just a kind of funny, like a mum was at a rugby game and she turned to chat to her friends or partner and the baby rolled down the hill. <laughs> It was hilarious. Somebody had filmed, and the story was, watch baby roll down the hill. <laughs> and it was just Very funny. It was hilarious. But not of huge consequence, no. perhaps. Yes. And not even, not even curated, not even filmed by us. <laughs> not, it was just a funny video. And, and that so, went off. And that went off. And so when people are high-fiving that this video <laughs> went off, I was just like, but that is absolutely, absolutely no editorial contribution to that. <laughs> so, you know, my argument is trust and goodwill uh, measures and public impact, they're difficult to measure. Yes. Um, but I think they're as, in, they're as important. How do you communicate that to, to marketers and business analysts? I don't know. I just think, you know, the more journalists we have in the room with those marketers and business analysts, the, the stronger our case is. So media diversity, do you see that also including, I suppose, wider than ethnicity, uh, people with disability or people, like you mentioned before, lower income groups? Or... Yeah, sure. Mm. So we, in the past six to eight months, have extended our scope to include people with disability. So we have two people, one on our national committee and one on our Queensland mm. committee with lived experience of disability. What we do know is that we can't be everything to everybody. But what we also realise is we didn't want to be kind of hypocrites because we felt that women in media, while doing an excellent job for Anglo women wasn't really engaging and representing me, for example. So I thought, am I just the next wave of diversity hogging the diversity space? And so we didn't want to be what we were trying to avoid. We've been approached by members of the LGBT community saying, what about us? And I've had to kindly but pretty confidently say I don't believe people of diverse sexuality are in low numbers in newsrooms. In my experience um, they're much more prevalent than people of colour and I use that term quite broadly and they say oh but what about the national debate it's not just about bodies in the newsroom it's also about shifting public debate. I'm like but you've got the bodies in the newsroom which will then have a trickle down effect on public debate. We don't have bodies in the newsroom. I've, I've done some work at 7, I've done work here obviously at 10, SBS, ABC and so often you know for example the middle Eastern or Indian body count in the room is me and the front guy at security and so I say you know I walk in and the ethnic count has doubled and I walk out and it's halved and it's just Ahmed at security that's a problem when 49% of Australians were born overseas or have a parent born overseas and I argue that we are no longer a minority different is the mainstream and our media needs to engage that reflect that I I find it interesting. Even in America, I think you see a much more diverse. Absolutely. Uh, and I wonder why that is in Australia, and hopefully that, that is changing. Well, in, uh, we don't know what it is, but we're mm. hoping to come to some of those answers. So uh, we You're have. You're doing some research? We are. That's we are. wonderful. So we've mm. partnered with Deakin University in Melbourne, Macquarie University, Sydney University, with Tim Sukpomasan, the former Race Discrimination mm. Commissioner, and Western Sydney University, as well as MEAA. We've got some funding from MEAA and Google News Lab. Um, and we are doing a diversity audit of news and current affairs television. In the United States, unlike Australia, when you fill out your employment form, they take down demographic data that includes background. And so I don't, their categories are different. They're like Hispanic, African-American, Asian, Native and other. You know, their ethnic groups are different to Australia. 
So each network already has that data, be it a bank or a broadcaster. We don't have that data. Um, ABC is the only organisation that is legally obliged to collect that data. And even so, on last count, I think 12% of ABC's program content makers were diverse. So even our public broadcaster is lagging behind. And I would argue that nobody, very little people in editorial decision making um, positions is um, diverse. So we see ABC News 24 on the veneer, we're seeing more different faces, but we know that the buck stops with the middle management, the EP who makes and breaks careers, who decides on stories, the news director. They're still not um, filled by people with diverse backgrounds. So in doing this research, we will audit free to air news and current affairs program from your sunrises right through to your Q and A's. We do doing a two-week slice in June and we will compare that demographic data that we collect. So any on-screen pers uh, person, so presenter, reporter, um, but there'll also be interviews with senior editorial leaders around the country because we know that the front-facing is just one aspect of it. Then this will be compared to data that's available in the US. Some but limited data is available in the UK and then our academics will draw on international comparisons to see how and why we're lagging behind what they're doing that we could possibly be adapting. I think unless we have that data, people I think anecdotally know and understand, but I think once people have those hard figures, it's going to be difficult to hard to argue with hard the, to argue with but also difficult to measure progress you know we know in the two and a half years since we formed there has been change small change but there's been change we've helped some major outlets appoint diverse people in prominent positions again this is all, all of this work is done you know quietly and behind the scenes so we're certainly seeing you know we're often approached by outlets saying we want diverse candidates for this position can you help us so we're certainly seeing more of a willingness but we know that time uh, that change takes time but this data is going to be really important in say repeating it in five years to see where we're at then. Hopefully we can catch up then and see how much progress yeah. has been made. It sounds like you've got a few battles on your hands we, here we do. Antoinette between that and the journalism is not a crime campaign which yes. you're involved in as well so um, and then finding your stories on top of that. Yes. It never stops does yes, it? it does. Is it a bit of a 24 hour calling? The it journalism is. Game? For those drawn to it and you can probably echo my sentiments it's something that you just you, you do journalism because you're passionate. I think it's a personality type, not a career, it's it's a lifestyle and I you know absolutely love it. The other battle that we have interestingly is dealing with reticence among some ethnic communities to encourage and support their families to pursue careers in journalism. So it's journalism at the beginning as, yes, well. as well. Yeah. So particularly at a time where it's well known that the industry is in a bit of a state of turmoil. It's you know arguably under attack within its business model and under attack by government legislation and so then you have these you know either refugees or first generation migrants wanting to study this and parents going I don't know about this I don't know if you're going to get a job the other the other side is we've seen diverse commentators be absolutely lynched should they say something wrong and trolled you know there is data that um, collected and some research by women in media and MEAA which showed that women of color or, or women generally and then women of color get trolled the worst on social media have you found that yourself I have I have mm, that must um, be very difficult to do. It, it is especially because I have young children 
and when there's threats towards towards young children. You know, I, I had to engage um, 10 security management recently because I just kept getting harassed by someone simply because of my ethnic background, not because of a story I did, but simply because he believed, and it's a problem, problem when he's echoing our immigration minister's sentiments that uh, Lebanese people shouldn't have been allowed in the country and it was a mistake to allow those wave of um, refugees, which my parents were a part of in the 70s. So he just was like, oh, because I don't like your type, I'm just going to harass you on a daily basis. Not because I, he, didn't, he disagreed with the story, not because I wronged him and misrepresented him in my coverage, simply because of who I was. And we've seen, um, you know, people on Q&A, we've seen people from uh, the Muslim community who were, who, were, who were lynched, should they say something. The scope for failure or to step out of line is much, much more narrow and the backlash is fiercer. So, you know, sometimes people say, why would, you, why would I want to be fed to the wolves? Why would I? Why would I put myself in that position? Because it stops you from using those tools of the trade. I mean, Twitter, yes, it is an echo chamber, yes. but this is where journos yes. do a lot of their work and find their stories, and yeah. and they're trying to cut you off from that. Yeah, and scare you off or um, break you down, break your spirit down. So yeah, then there's you know we're often having some of the work we do is just supporting um, young diverse journos who are like I can't cope with the backlash, I can't cope with the vitriol, I can't cope, my family can't cope seeing me cry anymore. They're telling me I told you. So and so maintaining that that support network. It's been really, it's that's, been really that's important. Yeah, it's yeah. been really important. So there, there, there's a there's a battle on a, there's a battle on a few fronts, but I think the public impact is great is the greater good, and I um, so that's what we keep pushing for. Well, to wrap up, Antoinette, thank you so much for joining us on Streets of Your Town, the Jono Project. Really appreciate your time today on our podcast. What would you say? to young journos, young budding journos who are contemplating this career at that cusp like you're talking about, parents maybe thinking, actively saying to them, this is not a great idea. What would you say to them at that point? I would say that I would have made a terrible hairdresser and I'm very glad I didn't listen to my father and that every day I wake up um, loving my job, feeling that I'm contributing to uh, public debate, you know, that you have a role, an important role in democracy and that without our voices and without diverse voices I think you know broader Australia suffers from it so um, and it, it's, it's a privilege it's a real privilege um, to be a journalist and I think it's a real privilege to be a face and a voice for your community be that geographic or cultural and I think unless we have those different voices those communities are going to suffer. Thank you so much again Thank Antoinette Latouf really so appreciate much. it. Thanks for the chat. That was Antoinette Latouf, senior journalist and presenter for Network 10 and director and co-founder of Media Diversity Australia. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.